Be back in Colossians chapter 3 this evening. Seems like there's a lot of debris on the pulpit this evening. Colossians chapter 3. In verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and thank you for um, the uh, large amount of information and precepts that are in your word in these short verses, Father. And we ask you to be with the, uh, with the message this evening, Lord, and have it be your words and your truths only, Lord, on them. A sensitive subject that can be difficult, Father. We ask all this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, so I was not looking forward to preaching this tonight. Uh, Sorry you had to deal with me while I suck on this throat lozenge. But I am grabbing my phone because for part of this, I'm going to message Becca to bring the kids back over because a portion of this is for children. So to bring them back over. However, it is convenient they're all over there because this first portion... Not really um, something for children and kind of a difficult subject to cover with little kids in the house. However, tonight we're going to look at, uh, we started out the book of Colossians. We need to keep it in context as we get to this section uh, because we're, we're going into a sensitive subject of, of the home. And so keeping it in context with the preceding verses, if you were here last week, is that we are to be resisting our carnal self. We are to be putting off the dead man, the old man, I should say, and make him be a dead man. We should be resisting those carnal things. And Paul's saying, I die daily, and to strangle the life out of that old man. And also that old man had an outfit on that we had to take off. There are certain clothing items that went with that uh, uh, that are going to include bitterness and other things we'll look at tonight. But also by putting on the new clothing in Christ. Things that we are supposed to wear as Christians... Whether the relationship is with a spouse, as we'll look at, or children, or lost people, or in the church. And so, unfortunately, I believe that a lot of preachers and teachers, even those who exercise expository preaching, when they get to this section of Colossians, uh, they, they uh, kind of abandon their contextual basis for interpretation and and taking it in context of the verses around it, and fall into the trap of isolating them from the surrounding text, as if this isn't fluid from what Paul was just writing. Uh, So something important to remember, too, is that these verses are not divine. These were added by people for people about 500 years later or so, just for the sake of navigation of Scripture. This was a continual letter from Paul. And so it's important that you read it as such. He's not all of a sudden hopping from topic to topic. Yes, like Book of Proverbs is like that. It could jump from topic to topic, but it's written like that as Proverbs, hence its name. However, this was a continuous letter. Paul wasn't all of a sudden, oh, and by the way, and talked about something completely different. Keep it in context. Who was he talking to? Was the, book, the book was written to the Colossians. So God has just covered the preeminence of Christ in creation in chapter 1. He said, listen, I want to establish some things. Christ is preeminent in creation. He is the first. He is the creator. He is God. He establishes him as preeminent in creation. And then what does he do next? 
in the following chapter, he says, preeminence in the church. Colossians, he has preeminence in the church, should have preeminence in the church. He is the foundation of the church. And when you remove him from that, from being the preeminent focus of the church, things will fall apart. But remember, they were actually, they were actually um, celebrated by Paul that he said, I was worried, but then I got word that you were doing really well. But I want to warn you of these things that are coming with weak theology, with bad theology, with false teachings, with worldly philosophies. And he went into a list of that. And so he was showing there's preeminence of Christ in creation, there's preeminence of Christ in the church. And then he said, now the church consists of individuals. And what do those individuals need to do? They need to put off the old man. They need to put off the old garments. They need to put on the garments of righteousness that now they can wear because they are a new creation under Christ. And he says, I'm addressing the individuals of the church now. Now he says, I'm going to go into the institution of the home because preeminence in creation, preeminence in the church, preeminence in the home. It's not all by itself out of nowhere. Paul is continuing what God wants him to in this letter, which is a continuation of Christ being preeminent in everywhere of your life. And so, if Christ is preeminent in all things, then that does include our home and our relationships. And so the, so the focus of this sermon is the preeminence of Christ in the home. And so the preeminence of Christ in the home, of course, uh, what you look at first is marriage. And so look back at verse 17 just to, just to pull us into the context of what's going on. Look at verse 17. It says, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, would that include marriage? Yes. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Your gratitude to God is expressed in deed and word. Marriage is one of those. Does that make sense? Marriage is a vehicle by which you show service to God. It is not the end of a means in itself. It is not something that is uh, to replace God. It is not something to be worshipped in place of God. It is not a replacement for anything. It is a way in which a man and a woman coming together can unite and serve God together. And now I'm talking about, of course, Christian marriage. And so that's why it's important to look back at verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ended the last sermon by saying, if you say, in the name of Christ, and you add what you're going to do after that, it makes it a lot easier to weigh what you're about to do. In the name of Christ, I'm going to yell at the driver that cut me off. In the name of Christ, I'm going to slip an offering into somebody's purse who has a need. See, it makes it a little bit easier to decide, is Christ actually probably behind what I'm doing? Is he the, the reason I'm doing it to show gratitude for what he has done for me? And so it'll pull us back into it. So there are certain institutions, just to cover you real quick, the, the opening to this is going to be a little bit longer, but, but we looked at verse 17, we see we're being pulled into the context of this. It's preeminence of Christ in the home now, but there are some institutions that are established in Scripture. And so the, the government being one in Romans 13, you can see the outline for the government being established in Scripture. The church, you can go to Acts 20, verse 28. There's other places in Scripture you can see the church being established. The, most of the New Testament covers that throughout the New Testament. And, of course, that being established on Christ as the foundation, the cornerstone. 
and we build on top from there. And so that is the second institution. The third being marriage. And that started all the way back in Genesis 20-24 when he said Adam and Eve became one flesh at marriage. So of these three institutions, though, the government is God's business who he puts in power, right? The church is God's business because he is the foundation, and we are to build upon him. The home is God's business because the institution of marriage is his and was created by him. And so I think what many preachers do is they... They've put a bad taste into people's mouths when you come to this section of verses. And so uh, when I put it out today and said, hey, we're going to be on this subject tonight, I'm sure some people thought, oh, this would be interesting. But (laughs) I think a lot of preachers mistake by overstepping the bounds of their assigned institution that they're in. Because which institution, government, church, or home, is the pastor a part of? The church. He is not over your home, and he is not over the government. He is an overseer of the local congregation of believers, the under-shepherd of Christ for the church, the local assembly. And so I think what happens a lot is pastors and preachers overstep into the institution of the home. And that is God's role. And what I'm hoping to convey this evening is that what God has established as the markers of a healthy, ideal, Christ-centered marriage in the home. It is not my, my opinion. It is not... Uh, me to say, this is how you run your home. It is not for me to step in and say you're doing it wrong. I'm just going to tell you what God says about the roles in marriage, the roles of a father, the roles of children, and you are responsible to exercise this in your home. And so that's where you'll see a lot of counseling cases coming up where husbands or wives will come up and they will say, I need your help. But then what do they say? I need your help controlling my wife. I need your help controlling my husband. Is that a pastor's job? No, it's not. Your job is to control yourself in your marriage. Your job is not even to control your spouse. And so it is, it is the responsibility of you as a wife, as you as a husband, to control yourselves under what God has set in his precepts right here. It is not the role of the pastor to fix your spouse. And so it's pretty common, but what's all, what also is important to remember is that these is that these verses that we're going to cover, we're going to start out with wives and then husbands, is that is that the these are written for the those individuals for their edification. This the the verse about wives is not written to husbands, and the verse about husbands is not written to wives. Because the, the verses of wives are written as a measuring stick for wives to measure themselves against God's standard. Not as a stick to beat your wife when she doesn't meet the standards. And vice versa for wives and their husbands. This is not a rod of correction. It's a rod of measurement that God has put for you to measure yourself and your position in the marriage. And so I hope that comes out pretty clear is that, I, and I want to wrap it up and say what this sermon is not because it will help. This is not an exhaustive study on marriage. This is not all-encompassing. We're only covering a few aspects and precepts mentioned in these verses in Colossians. So is there more to be said? Yes, there is. Ephesians says more. 
Is there a lot more examples that we could go through in Scripture? Yes, there is a lot of examples. So you can raise your hand if you want to be here for about two more days straight while we cover every aspect of marriage and do a whole marriage counseling session. Or we can, or a whole marriage seminar, I should say. Or we can just cover what's in Colossians as we're supposed to. And so that is what this sermon is not. So you'll see, wives, before we start, wives, your focus is on your will. That's what God looks at. Your focus is on your will. Husbands, your focus is on your love. Children, your focus is on obedience. And fathers, your focus is on grace. Wives, your will. Husbands, your love. Children, your obedience. Fathers, on grace. Now, if you're a man, how many of those do you need to remember? Two. One if you're a husband, another if you're a dad. If you're not a dad and you're just a husband, you got to remember one, right? Remember, you're not supposed to remember everybody else's job to beat them over the head. Remember your job tonight. So we'll start out. So we'll start out here. So verse, uh, verse seven or 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit unto the Lord. And so, as we get into this, what's important, or another important aspect, there's a lot of important things to get around this, but something that you need to look at before you get into marriage and start talking about the wife's role is that a lot of women think that marriage is going to be the culmination of love in their life, and that marriage is the goal. That's not the end. The day you got married was not the end, was it? No, it wasn't. Was the day you got married the end? No. Nope. Melissa, was that the end for you? It was? It might have been. I've met Wes. That might have been the end of your life right there. But that's not the end. It's not the end of a means. Your marriage is important. It's, your marriage is important because the marriage itself is not the goal. The marriage is a vehicle by which we express our love to Christ. It's just, it's a way we express our love to Christ is through marriage. It should be a team effort. So I'm trying to get rid of this throat lozenge, but it has stuck to my cheek. So the, so it's a way you, it's a vehicle by which you express your love to Christ. Meaning that the marriage, your spouse is not the ends to your joy. Christ is the end to your joy. Your expression of that is to your spouse. That is how you show verse 17 with your gratitude to Christ. And, and so when we look at this verse, let's rephrase it a bit to help out because submit has some bad connotations to it in the United States. We don't like the word submit. I mean, we were founded on rebellion, right? We rebelled against the Brits. We, we don't like submission. That's a bad word. We picture, you know, like... My dog, when he submits, he goes belly up and he lays there and wags his tail like, I'm subservient to you. But let's, let's rephrase it a bit. Wives, now, wives voluntarily and willingly yield and surrender to your husband and not, look at the verse, and not another man or an idealistic man who is not your husband because it is proper and convenient in fitting for your relationship. Whose relationship? Your relationship with Christ. Remember, this is the ideal relationship that we're covering. is two Christians, a man and a woman, married, being addressed in verses 18 and 19. 
So this is the ideal. We just went through a whole list in Colossians of the ideal clothing you're supposed to wear. We know we fall short of wearing that on a regular basis. The only one who ever wore it perfectly was Christ. Yet when we get to these verses, we beat up our spouse when they don't fit perfectly into this role. That's not your job. Who is it for? It says it's fitting for whose relationship, wife? Your relationship. Not your husband's. And so you want to voluntarily and willingly yield. And also these statements are positional, but they're not conditional. And so what do I mean by that? That these are precepts. They are a rule for wives. And when I say they're positional, uh, what do I mean? Is that it is not the case for people who aren't married. If you're not married, are you positionally a wife on this earth? No, you can't. It is positional, but not conditional. Once you establish yourself in the position of being wife, this, this verse is not conditional. It is a precept and a rule from God. And so, and so, what I mean is not conditional. It's not based on cultural norms or social status. It's not based on your husband fulfilling his role. And it's not based on, so, on society norms. It's, it's none of those. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter how old you are. It is not conditional terms of precepts and rules that God has set for a wife. And so you have to look back at the Colossians. As they lived in a Roman society where patriarchy was normal. So this was not like flipping the world upside down for them. The next verse is, but not this verse. A wife submitting to a husband is not a total world flipper for these folks. It was patriarchal. Now there are some uh, societies on earth where this would turn them over, like New Ireland and Papua New Guinea, where it's a matriarchal rule, and the women make the decisions, and the husbands actually are almost domineered by them. And so there are some societies where this would be flipping them head over heels and saying this is a total 180 from what you're used to, but not for us in the United States. We're patriarchal. It's not that big of a deal. And so it's not based on any of those conditions. However, I want to say before we get into this that in the case of abuse, I'm not going to go way into this, but in the case of abuse or safety, that's why God has established an institution for you women. What is that institution? Is it the government? That's right. What is the government's job in Romans 13? To punish evil. And so if your husband is doing evil to you and abusing you, exercise the institution of the government, please. That's why the police come to your house and help you. That's why God has the institution there, and that is why we are so appalled when the government was established by God as an institution to punish evil, and when they don't, it's appalling. Romans 13, that's why they were established. And also, you have another institution. What is an institution, a sanctuary that God has given you? The church. You have an institution of sanctuary. You have a church and a government to turn to if you have an abusive relationship. And so you do not have to. This is the same. Now, don't go off the deep end here, ladies. Just like the government, do I have to obey the government as a Christian if they tell me to go against God's word? Do I? No. If they tell me not to worship God, do I have to stop worshiping God? No. So if your husband tells you to go against God's word, who trumps who? God trumps you husbands if you go against God's word. 
Now, you don't do that indignantly. You don't do that pridefully. A good example is Daniel. He was showing a pattern, right? And then they said, stop worshiping God, and he continued. He did not allow the government to dictate God's law. When, and so what institution is God's law? That's his. And when a husband crosses into that one, that's dangerous turf. And so, and so when, you, when these things happen, obviously these are going to be, I guess you could say exceptions, but not really. They're, they are in Scripture. It's not an exception. You're actually exercising Scripture when you're using these things. And so if you want, we can talk about it afterwards. Like I said, it's not in here. We're not going to go through it. But you also, you can't follow this if you're divorced. It's another positional requirement, right? Uh, it's kind of tough because your husband or your wife is not with you. Uh, this verse is wives. You can't exercise it if you're divorced because positionally the marriage isn't going on anymore. And so uh, the last one being, of course, if you're single, you can't be exercising this verse. Now, if you're not finding, I want to say this before we move on. If you're not finding joy in, in, in loving and serving Christ while you're single, then you're not going to find it in marriage. Okay, single people, you hear me? I see three of them right here. Yep. I don't know. We don't have any other ones floating around here. Oh, Evan and Jaden back there. If you do not find joy in serving Christ while you're single, you're not going to find it in marriage. It will not be fulfilled in a spouse. There is no man out there that is going to fulfill your joy in serving Christ because you put, he put a ring on your finger. It's not going to happen. You have to find joy in serving Christ single, and you have to find joy in serving Christ while you're married. There is not another person that will fulfill that outside of Christ. So we'll move on. And so we take a clue from this verse right here. What does this mean? It shows that the largest, the largest carnal desire a woman is going to struggle with in marriage is permission. That is where the, the shortfall is going to be for a woman, is in permission. That's what being submitting yourself would be, right? It's permission. I have to permit myself to be led by somebody. You cannot beat me into loving you. You cannot terrify me into loving you. Terrorism didn't convert anybody to Islam when they started blowing anybody up. That wasn't their goal. Their goal was just to eradicate us. Fear does not make someone want to submit to you. And so you're, the biggest struggle that women are going to have, according to this, is permission. A woman has to give permission to be led. A woman has to give permission to have a head. And so to be, to be submitted means you've given permission, and that's going to be a struggle. I believe this stems from a mixture of internal and external fluences that make you view your husband sometimes. Where the struggle comes from is lacking. And so, the, and so I said it's internal and external influences. The world has a good job of making husbands look bad and make them look lacking. And so you have to be cautious of that. But when that happens... When you find a lacking hole in your husband, this is where the danger will come in. Whether it came from here, or it came from here, or it came from bad choices and friends, those influences will say, your husband does not measure up. And what starts to disappear first? The permission. Well, now I'm going to hold back permissions. I'm not going to allow him to lead me in this area. And so what happens is that we even see this in worldly marriages where a wife will establish, she, she'll, she'll start pulling back permissions, right? 
and she'll establish a platonic relationship with people to fill that void. And so I was listening to a, a um, it wasn't an interview, it was just uh, someone reading some, some excerpts from some studies over uh, same-sex relationships. And it's interesting that there is, a, there is a stark difference between homosexual men and homosexual women. Women actually have a very non-physical aspect that they're looking to fulfill in same-sex relationships. The men are not. There's a lot of, of physical intimacy involved with it. The women, not as much, not even close. What are they looking for? They're looking for a relationship that is filling something. And so that can happen in a, in a, a healthy Christian relationship, too, where they'll start looking for platonic relationships outside of the marriage to fill those things. And what does platonic mean? They're looking for close, affectionate, non-sexual relationships with people that permit them, permit them to fill the void that they were desiring in the marriage. I've seen this happen. Where a wife's heart drifts, the permissions start to get cut off. And you'll see very close platonic relationships develop with men, with women, who are filling those close those affectionate roles that they needed in a husband, but they're finding them in somebody else. And so the warning, of course, to, to women is 1 Corinthians. If you turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Boy, there's no amens tonight. There's nothing going on, huh? This is a, this is a tough message. 1 Corinthians 7. Don't worry, women. The men are next. But you've got to plug your ears, right? Because I will tell you what, men mess up way, way more. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What is the warning to women? In verse 5. Defraud not one another. That means do not abstain physical intimacy between one another when you're married. Don't do it. Permissions, right? That permission. Defraud not one another, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again. Physical intimacy, right? Come together again. Permissions. But why? What is the danger when a woman says, I don't give you permissions in my life anymore to lead me for physical intimacy? I've restricted you on those permissions. What happens? Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. You may think that you are getting a revenge or payback to a husband by removing those permissions. Remember, Colossians says, says subject, submit yourselves because permissions is going to be the big one that comes up first. When you remove that permission, you are now, who did you just introduce into your husband or onto your husband in that marriage? Satan. And trust me, he knows how to deal with a man who is being denied. Man, he's got a lot of ways these days. It's going to backfire when you start restricting permissions. And I'm not just talking about physically. I'm talking about mentally, emotionally. When you start pulling back permissions in your marriage as a form of retreat and a form of rebellion, that's against God. It's not against your husband. And so it's important to look at these things. And so you hindered God in your life because of a lack of permission as a wife is what we're told here. 
Now remember, there's a lot of other things we go to. We're just going to stick to Colossians. So turn back to Colossians chapter 3. Wives, submit yourselves. You hinder God with a lack of permission in your marriage. For your husband and for when that permission is for your husband to be your head. You permit God in your relationship by permitting your husband to be your head. Does that make sense? You permit God in the marriage by permitting him, by permitting your husband to be the head. And so I'm not going to go to Ephesians and go into a deep dive into that because I said this is not going to be all-encompassing. I just want you to look right at Colossians at that verse and take away that one sniper shot tonight. Wives, you're going to struggle with permission. If you do not overcome that and permit your husband to be your head, you're not permitting God to be in the marriage, and Satan will permit to be in the will be permitted into the marriage. Verse 19. Let's go to husbands. The first thing addressed here for for men, though, is pretty interesting. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. You know what I find fascinating about this is who did Paul mention first in the marriage relationship? Wives. Why did he mention wives first? Because wives are the heart of the marriage. And Satan knows this, and he's been trying to destroy it for many decades now in the United States with feminism, right? The feminist movement, sorry. Women aren't good enough unless they're men. No, women are great the way God made them. And when they try to be men, and now what? Oh, love your, what is the first thing men have to deal with? A lack of love is what Paul addresses with them. Your biggest struggle is going to be loving your wives. Love. So if both of you are trying to be a man in the relationship, what's lacking in the home? Love. That's not a struggle for women. That has to be trained out of women to not love. When a, when a child is born, who do they come from? The man or the woman? The woman. The woman inherently, by God's design, is able to agape love easier than a man because she has grown a child, has done nothing but taken from her and her nutrients. And now she's had to feed this child. She has given everything with no expectation of return, which is agape love. God said, I made women for this. And your struggle is going to be permission. It's not going to be love. But what is it for men? Love your wives and be not bitter against them. The first thing addressed with men is not being the head, not being leaders, not being in charge, not management of the home. What is it? Love. It's agape love. That's actually what this verse was in Greek. Agape. And so you can be with your wife. You can be with your wife without being for your wife. That's a dangerous ground to be in. You can be with your wife without being for her. And you can live with her without loving her. Men can do these things. And that's why Paul is addressing it first as a priority to the Colossians. You can live with your wife without loving her. And you can live with her, and you can, you can be with her without being for her. And she will know it. And it goes back to that permission thing, right? be a little bit easier to give permission to somebody that loves you. And so the word is agape. The same love expressed in John 3.16 when it said that Christ so loved the world that he gave himself. It's a sacrificial love with no expectation of return. Why? Because God said, I loved you, now you love your wife. And a lot of love in Scripture is addressed towards men. And so what does this verse tell us that the largest struggle for men is going to be? 
as selfless love. Look back farther in, in Colossians here. Look at those new garments that he says to put on. What is the greatest garment? Charity. You cannot have charity to your wife without love. You can't. Without agape love, it's going to be really hard to have to give to your wife with no expectation of return, just knowing that you've brought joy to God and joy to your spouse by fulfilling it. And so agape love is going to be the hardest thing for a man in a relationship. So you're in danger. You're in danger of seeing your wife as a drain. According to this, it says, and be not bitter against them. Bitterness. It says, you're in danger of seeing your wife as a drain, a hassle, becoming bitter towards them, angry towards them, a lack of passion and compassion towards them because they ask too much of you, because you're building some sort of bitterness against them. What does it sound like? It sounds like a lack of love to build bitterness towards somebody. You're asking me to give too much of me to you, and now I'm starting to build some anger and resentment towards you. Men, we are not inherently very loving creatures. We're not. And Paul knows this, and God knows this, and he stuck it right here in Colossians and said, you are going to struggle with agape love of your wives. And what's interesting, though, is that the man is being warned, you're going to have to give of yourself in this relationship. The woman was never told that. Why? Because I think by design, the way God made women, it's a little easier for you. But the men, to give themselves into a relationship is going to be hard. And so whenever you see uh, any jokes about husbands, and, or, or I should say in marriage, and somebody messing up and giving a gift that was wrong or stepping all over the other one, who is it always? It's always the husband. The husband gives a bowling ball for a birthday present. Come on, guys. We got trouble with this. I gave my wife a gun on Christmas one time. Bad move. Okay. Bad move. She actually threw it, and so it did not go well. Agape love does not come easily to men. And so when you're struggling with this, in your mind, in your mind, bitterness is the enemy now. Bitterness is the enemy. Because you're going to start to lack compassion and passion towards your wife. And men, do you think that a wife can smell when you're not having compassion towards them? Oh, man, like a shark in water with blood. They can smell that. Like, huh, I can tell something's off. And it's, it, the man struggles with this. To give of himself, of his time, of his income, of his life of himself. It's a struggle. And Paul says, it's going to be your number one, fellas. You're going to struggle with this. And so Ephesians 5.25 tells us how to sacrificially love your wife with agape love. It says, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Would, would Christ treat your wife the way you're about to? That's the question. And so according to these verses above, the enemy at the gate of your home the most dangerous person wandering around waiting to infiltrate is the husband. That old man that you were warned about back in chapter 3 in verse 10, look at that, and put on a, says you've put on a new man, right? But if you back up from verse 10, farther back up, who are you being warned about? It says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. The enemy at the gate in your marriage is your old man, husband's. 
That's the most dangerous guy in your entire relationship. It's not someone you fear your wife will commit adultery with. It's not some smooth talker. It is your knucklehead, bonehead, old man self when, you don't, when you're too lazy to put him down every single day and you're tired. He's going to say, you look pretty tired today. I'll come on in. And what, what is he wearing? Evil concupiscence, covetousness, idolatry. Men, when you get lazy, the biggest enemy you've got is yourself. Uh-oh, Dave showed up. I knew I was saving that for him. That is, that is the biggest danger. And let me send this text to my wife so she can come back over. And so you are the issue in the home. And so you need to strangle out that old man every single day. And so I'll just say this, that, that in the United States, we have a, a misnomer that meekness is weakness. Christ was meek. Was he weak? With a thought, what could he have done? Wiped out every enemy. He spoke us into existence. He is the Word. He created matter and time and space instantaneously with just a word. And we say, well, meekness is weakness. Well, if that's the case, then Christ must be pretty weak because he was the meekest to ever walk the face of the earth. But meekness is not weakness. We're to be meek, we were told. That's one of the garments you need to have on, men, is to be meek. And what does that mean? Is that meekness is not being weak. Meek means that you have power restrained. That's what it is. Christ restrained the power he had to do those things. He was meek for the sake of grace and mercy of every single one of us. And so, the, and so you're not strong because you can beat your wife and kids with an instrument or your fist or your words or your actions. You're actually weak if you do those things. You're so weak that you refuse to fight the old man. That doesn't make you strong. That means you're weak. You're a weak person who lacks the strength to stand up to your carnal self. You looked him in the eye and went belly up. That's weakness. Meekness is having the strength to subdue him and put him down. For the sake of who? Your wife. Would you be celebrated if somebody was kicking in the door at your house, a burglar came in at 2 a.m., he's kicking in the door, he's coming in, and what would you do? You'd go into hero mode. You'd whip that comforter off. You'd come out guns blazing. Whatever it would take, right? Just make sure they fall into your house, remember? That's the rule, right? Make sure they fall into your house, and only one witness makes it easier for the cops. So, you'd take them out, and you'd be a hero. Be a hero. Kill that old man every single day. Do not let him in. He is the enemy. The biggest enemy you have. And so you are the issue in the home. You are why your wife is cold. You are why your kids are off the rails. You are the reason your daughter is hanging off, hanging out with boys and hanging off of boys all over the place to get the love. Remember, what do you lack as men? Love. You're the reason your daughters are looking for love, not from daddy, but from Jimmy. That's the reason. And it's not love. That's not love. You're the reason that boys have, your boys have a skewed sense of masculinity and seek the world for pleasures. You didn't have the fight every single day. And so that will be the biggest struggle for husbands is agape love. 
And so what is your caution? Is that when you start to have those thoughts that you, your wife is a drain, you get angry towards them, you are showing a lack of compassion, they don't deserve this, who is that? It says you're going to struggle with agape love. And so we'll move on from there. I think they're coming in. Perfect timing, children. We have a surprise for you. Allie's going to come up and preach to us, I think. All right, children, you have your Bibles? Okay, you need to open them to Colossians chapter 3, or you can just listen up. It says, Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Wives, what was it? What was it? What are you going to deal with? Will. The permissions. Husbands, what is it? Love. You're going to deal with, with love. What are children dealing with? Obedience in the home. Preeminence in all things, right? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise. What is that? Is that the first of the Ten Commandments? No, it's not. But it's the first of the Ten Commandments with a promise. And what is that promise? That it may be well with thee. Oh, you want to have peace with God? Then you better have peace with your parents. Rebellion against your parents is rebellion against God. Rebellion is the act of witchcraft and demonic things. It is not anything of God. But if you want to have peace with God, you need to have peace with your parents. That thou mayest live long on the earth. Wow. God's word has a promise with it that if you... Teach yourself to submit to the authority of your parents and say yes, and you follow through and you obey, right? And we teach in our house, it's not about just saying yes, you need to do it quickly. And so, the, and so you obey your parents, what is the promise? That you'll live long on earth. I don't know how, um, I don't know how that works out, honestly. Uh, nobody does. But I do know that Christians are removed from earth at, at death. We're, we're done when we're done serving God, when he says you're complete. I would think that this, this promise comes because when you learn to obey your parents, you're learning how to obey God, and you're just a usable vessel that much longer on earth. I really think that's what it is. You've made yourself so moldable by God that he says, I can use you for years and years and years to come. And I don't have to bring you home early. So verse 21, fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And we're going to wrap up here. And so what's the, what's the struggle for fathers is kindness and grace. We saw that in the new garments you're supposed to put on. Grace is commanded in Scripture because, because why? Grace has power. Did you know grace gives you, a power, gives you power to actually influence your kids? Do you know smacking your kids around doesn't give you any influence with them? Yelling at your kids gives you no influence with them. Grace gives you influence with your children. What gave, what gave Christ influence over your life as an adult? Was it his harshness? What is his, his sternness with things? Or was it his grace? Giving you what you don't deserve. It was his grace. 
And so fathers are going to struggle with kindness. And so grace is commanded in Scripture because grace gives you the power and enables you to lead your children. You need to have grace and kindness. And so why? And why does it say to be discouraged? This is not talking about the uh, self-esteem. This is talking about teaching your children God-esteem. Self-esteem is a worldly thing, a carnal thing. It's not in Scripture. If anything, the opposite's in Scripture of esteeming self. We're not talking about they'll be discouraged in their self-esteem. We're talking about is that you are the reflection of God in their lives, and discouragement is not of self-esteem, but of God-esteem, meaning that who they, why would they want to follow God that has been represented by a tyrant that belittles and demeans in their life? Would you follow God if he was a tyrant? No. Would you follow God if he constantly bashed on you and belittled you and demeaned you? So what does that mean to be discouraged? You're discouraging them from following God because, fathers, you are the representation of God in their lives. And now I say that, and it's really hard to say that because, man, who's a dad in here? Right there. Who's got grown kids? Dave's got grown kids back there. Yeah. I've got grown kids. I'll tell you what, if you have kids of any significance in age and you read that verse and it doesn't tear through your heart at a million miles an hour and rip you to pieces, then you're just ignorant of everything you've done wrong. There, you've messed up. You're just ignorant of it. Nobody somehow told you in your life that you messed up. Because you will break this. You will. You're a sinner. But you do not provoke your children to anger. Why? Because they're going to be discouraged from following God because you are the reflection of him in their lives. And so what do you want them to see? The mercy and grace, the kindness of God. And so it's important that we look at Colossians correctly in the context. We look at wives needing to give permission. Husbands, you need to practice love. Children, obey. And fathers, show mercy, grace, and kindness to your children. So we'll go ahead and close there. And so I think what we'll do tonight is... Um, Go ahead and give a little bit of time for personal prayer before we get the prayer bulletins out. So if Marion, you could come up and pray. Or pray, play. Yeah, we'll all watch you pray. You come up and play the piano. And just take some time in your seats tonight. And I know that's a, a lot of heavy information to deal with this evening. But go ahead and pray on your own in your seats. Or you can come up to the altar if you want to. If you got.